Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Andy Ricketts, news editor. And I'm Lucinda Rouse, senior multimedia reporter at Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. This week, we continue with our environmental series, following on from our discussion last week with Jabir Butt from the Race Equality Foundation about how certain social groups in the UK are hit harder by the climate crisis than others. And in Charity Changed My Life later on, we'll be hearing about how Marie Curie supported one family in Solihull. But first, in a period of record-breaking heatwaves in southern Europe and North America and an intense monsoon season in parts of Asia, extreme weather stories are dominating the headlines. We heard last week how minority ethnic groups, along with younger and older populations and people living with disability, are disproportionately affected by climate degradation in the UK. So regardless of your organisation's cause area, there's a high chance that your service users are being impacted by the climate crisis. This week, we'll be looking at how voluntary organisations can respond to the climate crisis when their mission or remit are not specifically focused on environmental issues. Joining us for the discussion is Janet Thorne, Chief Executive of REACH Volunteering. Janet is a member of Akivo's Climate Crisis Working Group and has an interesting story to tell about her own moment of realisation about the scale of the crisis and the need to act. Janet, thank you very much for joining us. And could you start by telling us about that turning point for you? Hi, thanks so much. Yes, I'm really delighted to be here. Um, I would say that I spent many years avoiding thinking about the climate crisis. I think I I kind of identified myself as someone who was concerned about social justice rather than environmental issues. So I would sort of skip over those articles in the newspaper or just generally sort of avoid it. Uh, Although I think I did have a growing sense of anxiety, like a lot of people, that worrying things happening. And perhaps I just didn't really want to engage with it. But then in 2019, in April, my daughter got quite involved in Extinction Rebellion. So I sort of got dragged almost unwillingly along to a lot of the protests. And um was really, really struck by the volumes of people there. I was really inspired by the fact they all had this kind of courage to deal with an issue that I'd just been dodging. And there were some really nice things about how creative people's solutions were and how it was a sort of regenerative care aspect to it, which I'd never come across before. So I actually felt quite inspired by that. And I didn't then go on and join Extinction Rebellion. But what I did do is then have the resolve to actually really start engaging with the issue. So I started reading about it following people who had really interesting stuff to say on Twitter and and LinkedIn and things like that. And that was really how I first started engaging with it. And so I think I really put quite a specific time on it, April 2019, that's when I started engaging. And then I realised that there's no bigger social justice issue than the climate, right? And so I realised it's totally central to what I should be worried about. And presumably more central than you'd perhaps thought about before in terms of your work and Reach's mission. How did you identify climate change to be impacting on your work? Yeah, that's a funny one. I I sort of sat with it for a while, right? So Rich is a service which connects up people who want to volunteer their expertise with charities and groups that need it. Historically, we've always been quite agnostic, you know, we're just like there to serve whatever charities bring to us. I I don't quite see how do I knit my need to do something about the climate with Reach, and I couldn't quite work out how to do it. And I sat there for a while thinking about it. And then suddenly I realised that it was like so obvious. It would be like not being able to see the wood for the trees. If the climate is the biggest existential threat to humans and society and therefore civil society, then REACH 
whose purpose is to support civil society. It's got to be the biggest issue for us, right? So it was kind of like, then seems so obvious. It was like, well, how have we not even realised that before? So yeah, that was kind of how the journey I went on linking it. I think probably what helped a bit as well was pretty much at the same time we were doing some work into equity, diversity and inclusion. And that forces you, right, to look beyond the confines of your organisation and look at bigger systemic challenges. So it helps you start having those conversations in general. So I think that also helped as well. And how did that kind of translate itself into practice then once you've had this realisation yourself? How did you then sort of get your trustees and the rest of your charity on board? Because obviously Reach's charitable objects presumably are not really associated with doing things related to the climate. So how did you tackle that process? Yeah, so the case I made to the board was just really that, that like if we care about civil society and that's our primary function, then we need to be engaging with the climate process. I think because we'd had these wider than us conversations about equity, where you're looking at, you know, what's the sort of systemic challenges about racism, things like that. The board, we were really having those conversations and that did really help. It sort of laid the groundwork. I think the other thing that really helped at that time was I was a member of the Climate Crisis Working Group for Akiva and we'd just come out with this pledge. And the pledge was really helpful in framing it, I guess, because it was so, it's kind of three aspects to the pledge. One is acknowledge the scale of the crisis. And within that, they talk about just transition and biodiversity crisis and stuff. So they look at much kind of the really systemic challenge of climate um, and then be ambitious about climate justice. And then the third element is act. So I took it to my board and said, I want to sign up to this. And the board being quite serious about things were like, well, okay, tell us how you're going to you know, lay that out then because um, you can't just sign up to a pledge without any serious intention of following through. So it really helped then embed it within the organisation as a kind of, well, okay, well, if we do sign up to it, what are we going to do about it? So one of the things that happened was around that time, we were reviewing our strategic framework, right? Our vision, mission, values. And our vision we developed was for a thriving, fair and sustainable society. And those words do quite a lot of heavy lifting, right? But sort of fair was about equity. Sustainable was about climate. So we developed that into four underpinning beliefs, which were about like why volunteering is so important, the power of connection, equity and climate. And so we kind of put that right at the heart of our strategic framework. So those were the conversations we were having. So it kind of helped it institutionalize it within reach if you like and make sure that the commitment was really substantial I mean that's a commitment then there was a what are we actually going to (laughs) do and I was a bit bullish about that I was like it is really complicated but if we wait until we've got a really neat action plan and if we wait until we've got all the answers we'll never get going because this is an emerging field and it's a emerging crisis we're going to have to be a little bit bold about just saying we're determined to do something and we'll work it out as we go along and I think that working out as we go along is really a core part of it if you're sitting and waiting until you've got your own house in order until you've got the answers you're never ever going to start and that goes for wider society and the politicians as well right but that really goes for charity so the getting going is important so how have you been getting going it's been what (laughs) four years three years kind of time frame so what have we done apart from signing up to the pledge we have also and putting it in our vision we looked at doing an eco audit, right? And we were actually offered a free one by City Bridge Trust, but we're such a small charity. We're 10 people. We work from home. Actually, we could invest a lot of time and effort trying to tamp down tiny gains, but they'd be so minuscule. The only thing we could really do of significance was change our hosters to a renewable one. And happily, they're really brilliant hosters as well. So, That's your internet host, your website yeah, internet host. host yeah, mm-hmm. sorry, not our, not our people hosting, our <laughs> virtual hosting. So it was much more, what can we do out in the sector? And there's two things that we've done. The first one is a little bit conceptual, so bear with me. But it was about thinking, okay, so volunteering is a brilliant expression or a way of enacting 
the values that we need for a just transition. So things like care and compassion, as against a lot of the values that have been promoted in the last few decades, really, which are about our identities as consumers, about maximising wealth and status and about a kind of much more neoliberal individualist society. And so volunteering is a really great way of people enacting those values and also showing how people enact those values. So we work with Common Cause Foundation, who've done a lot of work in this area and ran some workshops. And we actually ran a campaign which we launched in January called Change the Story. And that was all about how do we change the story of what it is to be human, because we are a lot more collaborative and cooperative than we believe about ourselves. And there's lots of evidence to show that. So that's one thing we've done, and we're going to carry on that work. We've been working, doing a community of practice with other volunteer-involving organisations, looking at how we talk about volunteering in terms of values. But the other thing, which is much more practical, I suppose, is, I mean, this is one of the benefits, right, about saying, all right, climate change is central to what we do, and the board's going, okay, now report back and tell us what you're doing on it there. So we started looking around a bit more intently, going, what are we doing? And we noticed that we have a lot of amazing climate action groups who are using our service we hadn't really spotted how many of them there were and how incredible they are. So they, a lot of them are like, they've got turnover of less than 10K, for example, a year, but they're scaling through volunteers and they're doing amazing things, really amazing things. It's very inspiring. So, and they're working on so many different things from, I don't know, Shade the UK, who are all about shade and overheating and vulnerable groups, Protect Our Winters, who are like sports enthusiasts. And then there's loads of campaigning groups and yeah anyway so there's a really inspiring array so we were like okay what can we do more to support them and we're planning a campaign which will launch in september which is basically just saying come and volunteer your expertise for these groups because they need you but i think it's going to be really powerful because we've seen it we've seen a really big surge in the number of people wanting to volunteer since october we've got like more than three times pre-pandemic numbers which i think is indicative of the fact that people really do want to do something. And we know there's a lot of people concerned about climate, but feeling really isolated and overwhelmed. But if you look and see how, if you look and see these groups and you see all these people who are already taking action, there's something really inspiring and encouraging about that. So we want to highlight that. It's like kind of normalizing the fact that lots of people are taking action and then giving people the opportunity to do something themselves. So we're going to run that in September. Yeah, so those are the kind of things we're doing so far. There's more stuff we'd love to do. We, I'd love to do a a programme on encouraging boards to really explore the intersection between climate and their own missions in collaboration with others, for example. But we need funding for that. And that's one of the challenges. There's just not much funding that I've seen that's certainly on a sort of more system with more strategic and systemic funding for climate. So, yeah. Yeah. And I suppose particularly funding that organisations who aren't first and foremost about the environment can access for environmental causes. Are there any that you're aware of? You know, I can't think of any. No, I mean, there's ones which are like green projects in your local community, right? The lottery's got that kind of funding, but the sort of more, how do we look at this systemically and how do we look at this outside our silos? I mean, it's so frustrating to sort of limit this to environmental charities because all charity... You know, if you could go back in time, right, to pre-pandemic and you could chat to a charity who had no idea that the pandemic was coming, which would have been all of us, right, and explained it to them. And then they'd gone, oh, well, that's not my issue because I'm not a health charity. You know, you'd be like, well, (laughs) I've got some news for you. And I think it's the same with climate. So limiting this conversation to organisations which are specifically about environment is just so short-sighted. But at the same time, in order to change your strategic mission to incorporate these considerations in a constructive worthwhile way you need expertise and like you say if you're working in your silo and you're looking at volunteering 
if you don't have that knowledge about how organizations can work better to address the climate crisis and yeah how are you going to do it but somebody needs to pay for that expertise yeah no I agree totally and I wish there was more support for that there is I mean there is some help out there and some of it is for free NPC is doing some work on everyone's environment where they're 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 mapping out the relationship between say young people and the climate people with disabilities and the climate so there's that and there are people who are willing to even support your board to have those conversations for free. I've come across those people as well. So it's not impossible without budget, but it would be a lot more effective if there was budget. I, I certainly would agree with that. Did you face much internal scepticism from your board or your staff members? And if so, how did you go about dealing with that? I was really genuinely surprised how little pushback I got from the board. I sort of developed the paper and sat there in slight trepidation, expecting them to push back. But like I say, I think we'd already done some of the heavy lifting about talking about wider than organisation issues that help there. I think the staff team is really varied in how much they're on board with it. If I'm totally honest, we're only a small team, right? But we haven't done some whole team training in this, which means that I can be really confident that we're all on the same page. And I would love to do that, but I've never quite found a course which we can afford, which really takes into account climate justice and interdependent nature of all of this in a way that's really kind of helpful. There probably are courses, I just haven't found them. But so yeah, so there's still work to do for sure. Yeah. And I think that's the next step for us, really. And you mentioned identifying charities and groups within your existing network and really raising their prominence and giving them extra support. Did you have to do that at the detriment of other organisations, other parts of your work focus, other cause areas? Not really, right? So, I mean, to some degree, there's always an opportunity cost with your time and efforts, right? So when you're doing something, you're not doing something else. But it's so strongly allied with what we're doing in the first place and with our values work as well, actually. So from a strategic point of view, it's really just a way of doing what's in our strategy, but with a slight shape or focus. And I think it'll help other organisations who we support anyway, because we're making new links and new networks and reaching into new communities to encourage people to volunteer, which will only benefit a whole host of other organisations. And I think there's opportunities within so many organisations work to not necessarily displace or what they're already doing or change their strategic focus, but more just give it that that shape. The best way of framing this I can think of is that it's not like climate's an issue and it's like either you pick up climate or you pick up another issue. Climate is the era that we're living in and you have to engage with the era you're living within and then think about how does that affect your mission and your work. And I think that's really the way we all need to be looking at it. And just developing that point a little bit further, Janet, what advice would you have for charities and other organisations that don't have a specific environmental remit on the sort of things that they can do, practically speaking, to address the climate crisis? Yeah, it's really tricky, right? We're within a system. And so there is an opportunity for everyone to do something, right? Because everyone is within the system. In a way, what makes it exciting is that if you act on one part of the system, you'll then be helping many other parts of the system as well. So there's lots of opportunity there. But to find what your place is, what it, what is yours to do, I think is for each organisation to sit down and work. So really the practical advice I can give is resolve to do this work. And it's not, it's not easy, right? It is, one, it's quite confusing because it's so systemic. Secondly, it's emotionally quite hard to do. I do recognise that. So you kind of have to resolve to do it. But if you resolve to make this, you know, resolve to do it, make the space and time to 
really understand how the communities and places that you serve will be impacted by climate and by adaptations to climate. Really map that out and make space as an organisation to explore what that means for you and what your first steps will be about addressing that. And you don't have to start huge, you can start really small. But I genuinely think that resolve is the most important thing, as long as it's followed through by action. But I think if, if you really build a solid resolve, it will be. So making the space, and I think whoever you are in an organisation, you can do something about that, right? If you're the chief exec, obviously, you've got the privilege of being able to put it on the board agenda, put it on the SMT agenda. But if you're maybe slightly more junior in an organisation, Go to your CEO and ask them for that space and time, just 10 minutes on the board agenda or just 10 minutes in the SMT meeting to start that conversation. And it'd be really hard for them to say no, right? <laughs> so, And there's lots of people out there that you can get to help you. So there's, like I've already mentioned, NPCs work. But I think whatever sector you're in, there will be... I came across Heritage Declares the other day, right? I never heard of that before. But if you work in Heritage, there's a whole community there of people looking through what does the climate mean for heritage and for yeah and so there will be that community out there who can help you with the ideas the thoughts the resources so find find that help and bring it and resolve to tackle it within your organization so it sounds like you consider joint collaborative initiatives in this space to be quite useful how have you found the Akivo climate crisis working group being part of that or signing on to the climate and environmental leadership principles to be in guiding what you're doing yeah I think collective action is really important because individually we all feel quite powerless even individually as organizations I think we feel quite powerless so joining forces with others is so important it's important because you have more impact it's important because none of us have got the all the answers so it's really helpful to join forces with others who will have part of the answer and and you can just make a much bigger difference so and and then morally it's important as well because it takes up courage to do this and so it really helps to be surrounded by other people who are doing who are on a similar journey so i'd strongly encourage that yeah i found it really helpful to join the akiva climate crisis working group because well, for a number of reasons, because you just learn so much from your colleagues and um, no one's got all of the answers to this stuff. So that's really helpful when you pull wisdom. And it's really just encouraging to have other people who are who, who get it and who are on the same journey as you. And I think it, it does help because it's difficult work. And then you're much stronger together, basically. So, yeah, I think definitely finding other people working on this stuff and joining with them is is the, is the best answer for sure. And it doesn't, if you haven't got anything directly within your sector or the, the field that you work in, have a look at sort of adjacent communities because there will be something out there, even if it's not within the charity sector, there will be something out there of people. There's so many people concerned about this. There will be other people from other sectors. And that can be really helpful to look at what they're doing as well for inspiration and for support. Have you joined forces with anyone from outside of the sector? Could you give a specific example of a group uh, that might be good it's been more individuals so far that i've had conversations with who are worried about climate but aren't necessarily from the charity sector and i found them really helpful some of them are doing really brilliant initiatives or they're running workshops or they're they're developing thinking and they're always supportive and always help if you ask them to have a chat they're always up for it because they just want more shoulders to the wheel so they're very welcoming and encouraging and i'd really recommend reaching out to the people who who you see doing stuff that you think is useful and just asking them for a chat because they'll be up for it. Are there any other practical guides or resources that you might be able to point people to if they're interested in finding out more about this? Yeah. So in terms of greening your own operations, there's some really good guides out there. Vaughn, Going Green Together is 
collated a brilliant selection and SCBO have also come out with a really good selection. So I'd say that's a really helpful. Those are the ones that spring to mind, I think, beyond the ones I've already cited. And it's all very good to pledge your commitment to doing something, but the hard bit must be actually doing something. How have you seen that in the sector and within reach individually, that shift from, yes, this is a problem and we need to do something about it to, okay, we are doing something about it? The hard bit is the acknowledgement. Honestly, the hard bit is recognising and engaging with it and really thinking about it and sitting with that discomfort and with the ambiguity it brings because it doesn't necessarily bring answers. That's the hard bit. Getting going and doing something comes as a massive relief. Mm. It feels better, you know, even if it's something quite small. And I've heard so many people say this, how good it's felt to actually get going with something. It can be just a shift in the slant, something you're already doing. It doesn't have to be a whole new programme of work. And in some ways, it's better if it's it's quite related to what you're already doing, because it's more likely to be sustainable and it's more likely to be your area of expertise. I think, you know, kind of going back to this idea that climate crisis is an era rather than an issue. It's the era within w- which we're operating. So what in, in terms of how you're operating, what do you need to change to be doing things in a way that's appropriate to this era? And I think that's the question you need to sit with and work through. And it really can be it needn't have a capital E for environment in front of it. Well, some really very interesting, thought-provoking points. So Janet Thorne, Chief Executive of REACH Volunteering, thank you very much for joining us. That's a big pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, we hope you enjoyed that discussion with Janet. Andy, what did you think about it? Yeah, it's really interesting actually hearing some of Janet's reflections. And the point that she made right at the start about how a personal revelation for her turned into something that was an organisational commitment in a way. I mean, obviously not everybody working in charities are going to have that power over their individual organisation. Janet's obviously the chief executive. I mean, she did recognise that in the things that she said and talked about how people lower down can maybe start to try conversations. But it's really interesting to hear also about how her organisation has now been looking outside the voluntary sector as well to get sort of pointers on things that organisations can do within the voluntary sector to try to tackle the climate crisis. Mm, Absolutely. And I think quite reassuring to hear that she felt like the biggest challenge is acknowledging and feeling that discomfort that comes with acknowledging the state of the climate and that Mm. something needs to be done. I would have thought that it's actually the doing that would be harder. And if you look at the possible backtracking by the government about the climate financing pledge (laughs) they make it very clear that it's easy to pledge something and then when it actually comes to execution it can be a lot harder so good to hear from her that at the level of a relatively small organization with what 10 staff Mm. she does feel that they are able to be making a difference and responding in an effective way once they've gone through that stage of acknowledging yeah and you're right that i think if a small organization like reach that doesn't even have an office can start making positive changes then that probably means that any organization with a voluntary sector can do that from the smallest to the largest i mean obviously for some there's going to be bigger things they can do we talked last week about the charities that have got investments and how the ncvo's new fueling positive change campaign is inviting charities to consider divesting from all fossil fuel yeah. type things 
those are obviously certain things that only some charities can do because not all charities have that level of investment but there's something that all organisations can consider Absolutely Now we move on to Charity Changed My Life in which we bring you stories of people whose lives have been transformed for the better through the work of charities and this week we'll be hearing from Hazel Carter about how her association with Marie Curie made a big difference to her life My husband was diagnosed with motor neurone disease in 2017. Immediately he was diagnosed, we were signposted to the hospice and I had all the support I needed in the early days of his care because he was going to degenerate and become fully paralysed. His entire last two months of his life was spent at the inpatient unit. It made such a difference at the end of his life for me to be able to step back more into the role of wife rather than carer. Without their support, I really don't know if I'd have survived. I remember one particular day, um, the day that the decision was made that he would stay in the hospice to end of life, because up until that point, he had wanted to come home. Within minutes of that meeting finishing, a whole bunch of lovely nurses came in and they said, Alan, we've got a treat for you. And bearing in mind, he was physically unable to move. He couldn't do anything for himself. And at our home, we'd only ever been able to have a shower in a shower chair. But in the hospice, they had this machine, I think I'd have to call it. They came in and they laid him down on this hoist bed type contraption. And they wheeled the whole thing into this huge great bathroom. And they lowered him on this bed into the water. And it was a jacuzzi bath. And the smile on his face and the look of happiness and joy because he was able to sort of more or less float in a bath, which he hadn't had. And it's one of the happiest memories I have of of what was basically a very sad time in our lives. I wish everybody had access to hospice care at the end of their life. I think it should be something we're all entitled to because it's a wonderful way for your life to come to an end. So everybody needs to dig deep and think of hospices as being an essential service, not a nice to have. That was Hazel Carter, whose husband received end-of-life care at the Marie Curie Hospice in Solihull. And if you have a good story to tell about one of your charity's service users or beneficiaries, we'd love to hear them. Why should you share your stories? Well, we believe it's a great way to celebrate the impact you're having with your peers and to help us end what can sometimes be a rather more gloomy discussion on an uplifting note. If you would like to explore the possibility of submitting a story, you can find details of how to contact me in the show notes. Very good. Now, Lucinda, the summer is here, at least it seems to be in other parts of Europe. But what have we got coming up on the Third Sector podcast in the next few weeks? So we're going to take a little break in our climate series, but never fear, we will be coming back to it for a discussion on how funders can help the sector respond to the climate crisis. But next week, we'll be delving into the world of corporate partnerships for small charities with Graham Marsh, the head of the McCarthy Stone Foundation. Very good. And well, some people might have noticed that I changed my job title at the start of this podcast, the more eagle-eared. Can you say eagle-eared? No, maybe elephant-eared. Elephant-eared. <laughs> People among you may have realised that I have gone back to being news editor, and that's because Emily Burt, third sector's editor, has returned from maternity leave. So will no doubt be joining us back on the podcast next week, which will be exciting. 
that's it for this week. Thank you to our guest, Janet Thorne, and our producer, Nav Powell.